Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Don't bring me no bad news. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices and even a vaccination program put on hold as they see a glass more than half full. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The markets took it all in stride with the banks posting earnings no one could have dreamed of just a year ago and the S&P and Dow and Nasdaq 100 all reaching new record highs. Even the U.S. Treasury 10-year barely blinked on the J&J news, with the yield ticking up only for a moment and then turning around and dropping the most since February. To help us understand the market reaction or maybe lack of reaction, we're joined now by our Wall Street Week roundtable of Nancy Davis, Chief Investment Officer at Quadratic Capital, and also Laird Landman. He is a Portfolio Manager for Fixed Income at TCW. So welcome, both of you. Laird, let me start with you. Uh, You are a fixed income guy. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds right now is inflation. Is it transitory, as Jay Powell tells us, or could it be more troubling than that? As you look at the fixed income market, what do you look at to answer that question? Well, I think it's very hard to know what to look at. In the 60s, people looked at the Phillips curve. In the 70s, the theory of, mon- of inflation was that it was monetary in all places. You looked at M- M2 growth. Um, in, the, in the 90s, it was P star. There's been all different models, and none of them have really worked. Um, today, we're, in a, we're clearly moved into a direction of uh, this, this modern monetary theory. And one of my favorite charts you can pull up uh, on your terminal is just, just chart uh, the budget deficit versus the growth in the Fed balance sheet. It's a one-for-one sort of item. So if anyone thinks we're not in modern monetary policy world, uh, take a hard look at that. Um, and I think that given that, it's, it's going to be very difficult to know 
whether inflation is going to be real or transitory. But as we increase the amount of government spending going on, and as we move from the government transferring money to individuals to actually spending the money themselves, uh, I believe the price elasticities will become, will change, and you'll actually see more persistent inflation. So that's something we're focused on, is the idea that government spending does tend to be subject to more inflationary pressures. And they will also crowd out, as they do infrastructure, they're going to crowd out traditional commodities like copper, lumber, steel. So, uh, Nancy, you actually try to hedge against inflation with your eyeball. ETF. Uh, give us a sense of what you look at on inflation, because in addition to what Laird said, for example, you look at money supply. And, and I mean, like M2, I think, has increased by more than 25 percent year over year. I mean, if you if you look at the data and you look at what's happening in reality between the Fed having an average inflation target, between uh, having fiscal spending, between having the Fed not even thinking about thinking about raising rates, um, and uh, a blue wave right now, and relative to the rest of the world, really exporting inflation now from emerging market companies and uh, countries. I, I don't know why people wouldn't have uh, inflation in their portfolio. To me, it's sort of like, why would you, why would you take a risk and take a bet? To me, um, inflation is actually a bigger risk to investors than a recession. Because if you think about what, you know, not, not, not healthy, normal inflation, but if we had runaway inflation, that would uh, decrease our purchasing power, right? Um, the cost of drugs, the cost of housing, the cost of travel, especially if we have a weaker dollar. Um, to me, I don't see why people are thinking or overthinking it. I think you should just have a diversified portfolio. And just because we haven't had runaway inflation for many years, doesn't mean we're not going to have it in the future. So Laird, pick up on what Nancy just said. Uh, what about the symmetry of the risk? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen, obviously, uh, but uh, what about the symmetry? Do you think there's a greater risk of, of out of control, if I can say unmoored inflation or of disinflation or even recession? Well, I was trying to be subtle in my first answer, so I'll be direct in this one and just say, I don't think anybody has a good model of inflation. Uh, and I certainly don't think the Fed has it. So the notion that the Fed targets a variable that they don't really have a model to understand seems a little absurd on its surface. So I do think it leads to asymmetry. And again, just look at that chart uh, that I mentioned before, federal, federal uh, uh, deficits versus the size of the balance sheets, uh, you do it across countries, and we're clearly in a new monetary environment. Um, and so I do think the risk is asymmetric at the end of the day. Uh, that this new type of economic approach may result in inflation that we previously wouldn't have understood from our models. And Nancy, one of the things that uh, I wonder about is the length of time over which we will not know the answer. We, we had an interview with Jim Bullard from the St. Louis Fed this week, and he said, basically, we're not even going to have numbers we're going to rely on inflation until the end of the year. As we get these CPA numbers and even PCE numbers, corporate PCE numbers, we can't trust them right now because of base effects and all those sort of things. Does that actually increase the risk because we're running blind for some period of time, assuming maybe contrary to what Laird says, we have a model at all? Well, I, I do think we have to keep in mind that all of these, whether it's CPI or PCE, these are all indices, right? They're, they're baskets of goods and services that, you know, the Fed officials, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they're trying to do the best they can with the baskets that they've created. But it's almost like if you, if you own the U.S. equity market, but you have the Dow Jones index and you just say, oh, I'm good, I've got it. 
but you don't have the NASDAQ or you don't have the Russell. I think there are lots of different ways to measure inflation. And, and David, that's one of the things you know we try to do with the eyeball ETF is give another measure of inflation expectations that's not linked to uh, a government entity creating an index for it. Thank you so much for our Wall Street Week roundtable of Laird Landman from TCW and Nancy Davis from Quadratic Capital. Coming up, dealing with high tech, one problem that the United States and China have in common, and former IBM CEO Sam Palmasano sees the differences and the similarities. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Big Brother is going after Jack Ma's tech empire. As part of a string of crackdowns, Beijing imposed a record $2.8 billion fine on Alibaba for abusing its market dominance and ordered it to stop making merchants choose between Alibaba and competing platforms. Here's company vice chair and co-founder Joe Tsai. With this uh, penalty decision, uh, we've... Uh, you know, received uh, uh, good guidance on uh, some of the specific issues under the uh, anti-monopoly law. China also ordered an overhaul of Ant Group, which has expanded into payments, banking, wealth management, and insurance over the years. I don't think the government wants this story to dominate through 2021. And specifically, they've been guiding media to report on how um, they, the government is pro what they call platform economy. They are pro the innovation. That's Duncan Clark, chairman of BDA China. The revamp leaves Ant's main businesses intact, but the new directive makes it harder for the firm to direct traffic from its payment service, Alipay, which has a billion users, to other Ant financial services, including wealth management, consumer lending, and even on-demand neighborhood services and delivery. Here's Ravi Menon from the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And our philosophy is simple. If you carry out similar activities, similar risks, as a bank, then you're subject to similar rules and similar requirements. This week, Chinese regulators also summoned 34 of the country's largest tech companies, from Tencent to TikTok owner ByteDance, warning them to curb their excesses, joining a global rush by governments to regulate big tech. Once again, Alibaba's Joe Tsai. Globally, uh, the trend is that uh, uh, regulators will be more uh, uh, keen to look at uh, some of the areas where uh, you, you could have uh, unfair competition. Sam Palmasano knows what it is to run a tech giant the government wants to regulate. 
from his time as CEO of IBM, when the U.S. government and the European Commission were both pursuing IBM. We asked him to evaluate the Chinese moves to restrict big tech and how they compare with U.S. efforts. If you go back, I'll start with China first and then get to the United States. But if you go back in the early stages of technology or in emerging economic opportunities, if we do it broadly, governments always try to provide incentives or clear a path for companies. And that started really in fintech in China. And basically, you know, I was over there a lot when I was working. And it was clear from the central banking system that they wanted to be able to get more liquidity going to small businesses. And the state-owned enterprise banks were really focused on mid-sized to large companies. So they gave uh, a lot of flexibility in the regulations to let these guys get going. And they did a phenomenal job. They get really big. And once they get really big, the government decides that we need to bring them back into the banking system and therefore create the holding company and subject them to more regulation. At the same time, it really struck me that after there was that record fine uh, imposed against Alibaba, Alibaba thanked the regulators for the fine. I don't remember IBM back in your day thanking the federal government for pursuing them. Well, you know, we, we uh, as I used to say um, when I was a CEO, I'm elected every year by the uh, shareholders. Uh, so it's a different system, you know, here versus there. Uh, but I really mean, I mean, I could see that why if you are operating in China, you need to maintain a close relationship and partnership with the government because they can impact your business either positively and negatively in a very direct way, in a very quick and direct way. Does that suggest that China may have an easier time, if you can call it easy, uh, really getting their control over the big tech companies in China because of that different relationship than, for example, Washington would have with the big tech here in the United States? You think about it, you know, it's not it, it's not a, it's not a, a split government of any way. It's a centralized government and complete control. So if Xi Jinping decides he does, he wants to stop an IPO of Ant, he just stops the IPO of Ant, you know, right? They don't have to go through the process. There's not checks and balances and those sorts of things. So therefore, the government does have a lot of control. And in a lot of, in a lot of the early stage government, companies, I should say, governments are actually active shareholders in those companies. Uh, and over time, they divest, and sometimes they don't. An example would be Lenovo, what we did with uh, selling the PC business to Lenovo. But at the early stage of that relationship, the Chinese government had about 25% share of Lenovo. Now, they've divested over time, but nonetheless, that, that they come in and out of companies. At the same time, uh, President Xi has made it very clear he wants to compete on the world stage when it comes to tech. He's made that a priority of his. Does he have to be somewhat concerned about going too far in really uh, curtailing big tech in China because it, it won't be as competitive with, for example, the United States? The key is he needs innovation, right? And there's a lot of the areas that they don't have the same expertise and experience in. Take entrepreneurship. I mean, there are a lot of great entrepreneurs in China but not necessarily in tech in China. So therefore, there's going to be a uh, encouragement, by, I believe, by the Chinese government for foreign investment in entrepreneurial endeavors, even though in other places they're trying to control foreign investment. Uh, so you'll see this sort of almost like it's uh, a split perspective or split uh, interactions. Some areas are going to say they want uh, indigenous innovation, but they need foreign help. Uh, and that's how they'll pursue it, in my opinion. Uh, look at Hong Kong, for example. They're getting more control of Hong Kong, but they're putting tax incentives to attract hedge funds and wealthy people to Hong Kong. So you would say, isn't that, aren't they 
counter counter interests of each other, the communist system of socialism, versus attracting hedge funds and large wealthy people. Well, they're very pragmatic, you know, and depending upon their goals, they will adjust. Well, it seems thus far, at least perhaps to be working in Hong Kong, because you see a lot of new uh, money managers cr- being created in Hong Kong and a lot of big banks, including U.S. banks, increasing their personnel in Hong Kong, despite all the civil unrest. There's a, there are incentives to do that. And like, you know, and companies learn, like we learn, you operate within any system that you operate within. Um, you know, in some ways, and I know this sounds crazy, but there's more stability in those centrally controlled governments than there is in our system because every four years you get a whole new set of priorities. So you could argue that once you adjust to their systems and you work within their systems, there's much more stability over time. And from a business perspective, it gives you more certainty of investment. If you go back in history, uh, the federal government here in the United States has tried to regulate technology. IBM, certainly they went after. They went after Microsoft. Do you think looking back at it, it did curtail innovation? You talked about China having to be careful it didn't curtail innovation. There's no doubt about it. If you look at all of us that went through it, what happens is that as you're going through the process, as they're trying to split you up or any trust, you are so focused on those cases of the government involvement, you tend, you tend to miss shifts in the technology. And that happened to every happened to IBM, Microsoft, AT&T, all of us. I mean, you just look at the history of these things. And that could happen here, that the more government involvement that there happens to be, you will curtail innovation. Uh, and that's a trade-off. Uh, I don't know that governments look at it that way. I mean, I really don't think they worry about that because their view will be that, look, we created more competitors. So yes, your company's not as innovative as it was before, but look at all these other companies that were created because we, the baby bells in the AT&T example, you know, alternatives to IBM, Microsoft, and the PC, you know, except and Intel, et cetera, et cetera. That was Wall Street Week contributor, Sam Palmisano. Coming up, how the economy looks from the top of one of America's leading banks. We talk with Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The Federal Reserve can put money into the system um, by increasing the money supply, but if banks aren't willing to lend it to corporations because they're afraid of bad loans and risky loans and write-offs, then the private economy will suffer. That was PIMCO's Bill Gross on Wall Street Week back in 1990. This week, bank lending was back in the news again as the banks posted eye-popping numbers despite sluggish loan growth. As in 1990, the Federal Reserve has done its part in putting money into the system, but this time it's not because the banks are reluctant to lend. No, this time it's that the government's given a lot of money to households that have used it to pay off debt, leaving less reason to borrow. We talked with the head of one of the biggest lenders in the country. He's Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. And we asked him what this says about the economy going forward. You know, this is a healthcare crisis, and the very good news is you're seeing the vaccine numbers go up. You're seeing the ability then to reopen without the risks that the governments can do in the states and cities and towns. And you're seeing people move around. So our spending levels for our Bank of America consumer customer base were record in the first quarter. March is the biggest month ever. If you go back and compare to 19, they're up 20%. And so divide that by two, it's up 10% a year, which is much faster than they were growing in 15 and 16, 17. So there's a bigger number growing at a faster rate. And yet people still have a lot of the stimulus in their accounts and haven't spent it. So the world still has a group. We have a group of Americans and a group of people around the world who you know, aren't back to work yet. And we need to get that done, whose businesses can't open yet because of the nature of them. 
We've got to get those done. But a, a big part of the economy, and I think you know, our prediction is that for the economy to cross over in the next couple quarters to be bigger than it was before the pandemic, is, is open and operating, and the consumers are spending money, and that's very good news. And then when you translate to Bank of America, what you're seeing is our deposits are way up because that money went into people's accounts and it's sitting there. But our loans are, are not as high, you know, fell because largely because people are paying us off because they have so much cash sitting around. So now the commercial side, we expect that to change. The economy growing at 7%, which is what we predict will require companies to borrow to service that economy. It's just that con companies had a lot of cash too. So we look for more loan growth as the year progresses. But the good news is the, the consumer's in good shape. There's an unemployment issue. We've got to get that the rest of the way down to where it should be. The business has got to get open. It couldn't be. But by and large, a big portion of the economy is up and operating very well. Bank of America has a very special viewpoint into the American economy because you have such a consumer, such a retail presence, and also the middle market. You really deal with small and medium-sized enterprises across the country. Are you seeing any pickup in the borrowing from your medium-sized companies yet? It, we've seen a bump along the bottom. Usage of our business banking segment, which is 50 million under revenue companies in our middle market, which is two and a half billion, we're seeing the line usage rel pretty flat. But the good news is it quit going down. We saw in the months during the quarter, January, February, March, it got a little stronger. Uh, our origination activity, meaning uh, you know, new clients and new deals done, is still is strong, bodes well for the for the year, but, but we got to see it come through. Um, and that goes back to those companies having a lot of cash and had to run very efficiently during the crisis because you didn't know what happened next. And, it, and, and now they're going to be need to start spending money on supplies and things to re, redo their inventory. Now, the one thing I think we all have to be mindful of is we got to get the trade. The trade is growing fast out of, you know, into the country, but the ports and things still need to get straightened out because of just the dynamics of the virus and the supply chains are still ironing out. So I think one of the things I worry about for mid-sized companies, can they get the supplies to do, do what they do? So you've heard about lumber prices or resin and things like that. I think it'll straighten out. We hope it'll straighten out. But that's the next sort of challenge. Outside the healthcare, the next challenge to get the supply chains really up and oiled and greased and running through to serve that fast-growing economy. So, Brian, when you talk about settling down, one thing that doesn't seem to be settling down yet are the SPACs, those special purpose acquisition companies. How much of your equity business, because you had a pretty robust quarter in equities, how much of those SPACs, and do you expect that to continue? You know, I, whether it continues or not, it's going to do some of the dynamics. And we do, we do selective ones. We're not as big in the business as other people, and, and that's fine. And in different times, we're stronger in investment-grade issuance, and other people are stronger in, in SPACs, and that's fine with us, and we go forward. But, you know, it seems to be uh, holding on right now. Uh, let's talk about yields. Uh, the yields have been pushing up on fixed income, uh, despite the fact that this week actually we had a downturn that may be a flip, flip or not. But it's really important to Bank of America, given the way your business works, what the 10-year yield on this Treasury is and what the yield curve is, the spread between the twos and the tens. Uh, what are you projecting for the rest of the year? Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We are all projecting that, and so we're up over uh, the 10-year, got up to 170 you know, plus. And the reality is, if the economic activity is picking up, and and prices are picking up, which you've seen, unemployment's going down. You know, it, uh, the yield curve will start to normalize, and you saw that start to happen as we came in out of last year, fourth quarter into first quarter. That helps us because as the curve gets higher, it, we can make more money from the loans and other things we do. Now, what's really important to us, honestly, is, is short rates. And the question is when the Fed raises rates, the market has it uh, pretty well deferred. And they've been clear that they want to see the inflation levels they've, uh, Chair Powell's talked about. They want to see the unemployment numbers. And they've been clear about that. The question is whether it will happen faster than they, they have in their projections, as they, even they have projections at 6% plus for GDP growth this year. 
And so we'll see when those rates, but that's the, that's the quicker route to success for us because we have all, we have all these no-interest-bearing deposits that instantaneously are worth more and we don't have to do any more work. Thanks to Bank of America Chairman and CEO Brian Moynihan. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. As we do every week, we're going to wrap up the week with our special contributor. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. Larry, welcome back. Great to have you here. Let's talk about inflation. We have talked about it on this program. You've talked about it elsewhere quite a few times. But this week, this week, we had the Council of Economic Advisors put out a blog post, a fairly long essay that I'm not sure, but I think it might have been responding to you. They think we don't have a long-term problem. What do you say? I read the CEA analysis pretty carefully. I can't say it put my mind at ease. Here are some things it didn't talk about. Didn't talk about the housing market on fire more than any time since the statistics were being created. Didn't talk about all the employers who reported that they were having difficulty finding uh, labor or the fact that the vacancy rate is already back to uh, normal levels. Didn't talk about the purchasing manager surveys, which show things uh, to be in unprecedented uh, territory. Didn't talk about the largest one quarter movement upwards in 10 year bond yields in uh, decades. It didn't talk about the consequences for inflation psychology of a change in the policy regime away from preempting inflation towards uh, preempting the idea of doing something about uh, inflation. It argued that there was going to be a variety of transient factors that would lead to high inflation uh, now. It's right about that. But that's a little bit like arguing that we're about to have a blizzard, but that doesn't mean anybody should worry about how bad the winter uh, is uh, going to be. So there are no certainties. And God knows economists aren't very good at forecasting uh, inflation. But if you look at the overheating economy theory of inflation, it looks like we're headed towards an overheating economy. If you look at the monetarist theory of inflation, money aggregates are growing at unprecedented rates. If you look at the fiscal theory of inflation, we're in an unprecedented uh, fiscal uh, experiment. So 
it certainly didn't convince me uh, that one should be relaxed about inflation. And David, I have to say that the frequency with which people return to this argument and debate suggests to me that there is a certain amount of uh, discomfort and uh, concern uh, out there. But we'll see what happens. And I don't think we'll know uh, for 18 months uh, or so uh, what the uh, consequences of the experiment we're engaged in are. But so far, uh, nothing's happened that has given me any reassurance. And if anything, the flow of the numbers has uh, been more rapid than I would have uh, expected and more cause for concern. Larry, let's talk about growth. Uh, We've long heard about how delightful it is to have global synchronized growth. Right now, it doesn't look like we're headed there. We have asynchronous growth. We certainly have China doing quite well. The United States apparently is headed, at least for a year or so, into pretty robust growth. On the other hand, Europe seems to be lagging behind. And then don't even get me started about some of the emerging markets. They seem to be really suffering quite a bit. What are the risks in that kind of uh, uh, asymmetry in the global economy? You know, to paraphrase uh, Dickens, we may be headed for a tale of two worlds between the U.S. and China on the one hand and large parts of the developing world on uh, the other. I heard a debate the other day, and it's the most depressing debate I've heard in a long time, about whether when you look at Latin America and Africa and even parts of India, you're going to be looking at a lost decade or you're going to be looking at a lost uh, generation. We just have not seen remotely the kind of boldness and imagination that we've seen in responding to this with monetary and fiscal policy for the rich countries like the United States in some of the poorest countries. And to have that kind of effort requires the international system to step up. And so far, it's really stepped up in a rather inadequate way. I think this is going to have huge political consequences for our security, not to mention the tragic consequences for millions, if not uh, 10 millions of uh, people. At the same time, I can hear in my head some people up on Capitol Hill, I will say they tend to be Republicans, maybe not exclusively, who say, why is that our problem? You heard that in some of the exchanges with Janet Yellen, the Secretary of Treasury, actually, over the SDR, the Special Drawing Rights Contest about the IMF, which basically, why are we helping out the rest of the world? I'll tell you why. Because there's one human gene pool. The longer this is out there, the more it evolves. The more it evolves, the greater the risk that our vaccines won't keep us uh, immune and that Americans will start dying in large quantity again, that we'll have to lock up and uh, close down again. This is not a charitable endeavor. This is forward defense of our global interests. And look, I'm I'm as worried as anybody about uh, China. I'm as worried about anybody as Russia. 
But frankly, over the next decade, I think we've got more to fear from microbes than we do from Xi Jinping. So let's wrap up this week with a lightning round here, as Summer says. Number one, let me ask you, uh, do you think that we'll have a 10-year yield at 3% before we get down to 4% on the unemployment number? It's a race. My guess is we'll get to the 4% unemployment rate first because we'll get to it this year. Uh, And secondly, there's a lot of talk about inequality, income and wealth inequality in this country. It's been great and growing for some time. A lot of people say we have to fix it, including Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve. If you're going to really address that issue, can you do it through fiscal policy or other means, or do you need labor law reform such as President Biden is trying to implement? I hesitate ever to use the word need, but I'll say this. We sure could use uh, labor law reform uh, in uh, this country. I think it's something where we Democrats have not been aggressive enough uh, for a long time. The impunity with which employers can break up union organizing efforts and fire union organizers with only a slap on the wrist is a national embarrassment. And it is something that should be changed uh, very quickly. Beyond that, we, we, we need to think about our approaches to uh, labor bargaining because there are certainly some excesses in the other direction and we need to find uh, some new models. But I think we're not going to change this fundamentally enough unless we change what's happening in workplaces as well as changing national fiscal policies. And finally, Larry, you, of course, were Secretary of Treasury. Toward the end of the week on Thursday, we heard from the United States government they're going to impose new sanctions on Russia for that solar wind uh, hack as well as for interference in the election. And part of the sanctions were really specifically on Russian sovereign debt. From your experience, is that a gesture or could it actually change Russian behavior? How effective is that sort of sanction? I think it has, I think it has some impact, but it's easier to be critical of sanctions than it is to identify an alternative. When countries do things that are sufficiently wrong from our viewpoint, and we, don't, and we want to do more than talk, and God knows we don't want to do anything violent, there's a tendency for policy to go to sanctions, and it's probably the best of bad alternatives. Okay, thank you so very much to our Wall Street Week special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard University. Finally, one more thought. Bernie Madoff. This week, Wall Street lost one of its most infamous villains. We all know the story. The man who spent decades building an investment fund that didn't invest, who told his 4,800 investors they were worth $65 billion that wasn't there, who took advantage of the rich and the famous and the not-so-rich and the not-so-famous, his close friends, and even the endowment of the Orthodox University whose board he chaired. This week, Bernie Madoff died in prison like Charles Ponzi did 70 years ago, the man who gave his name to the scheme Madoff copied and then took to a scale no one could have imagined. When something as big and as bad as Bernie Madoff's crime happens, we all look for some larger meaning. Does it show us that we're all gullible, that we're all greedy, that we are all too willing to wish ourselves to success even when it's too good to be true? Does it tell us that no matter how much we may regulate, we can never regulate our way to integrity? Or maybe, just maybe, 
It's an important reminder that there are some people who are out there who, and there is no other word for it, have evil in their heart. But they're rare, and the willingness of the rest of us to trust, despite knowing they are out there, is what makes it all work in the end, isn't it? That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.